When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan with you here from The Square Ball, along with Michael and Phil Hay from The Athletic as well. To read Phil's stuff, including the Jesse Marsh sit-down interview that you've done this week, Phil, um, you can sign up to The Athletic right now, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, pound a month for six months. Um, Good interview, that, Phil. We will get into the weeds on that one a bit in part two, but uh, just give us a brief overview of that. Yeah, I went to see him on Tuesday at Thorpe Arch, um, had a bit of time up there with him. Um, interesting, I, I felt, to get into his background, really, and the process of him going from growing up in Wisconsin in America's Midwest to coming to Leeds United and obviously in between Salzburg and Leipzig. So, yeah, really interesting chat. Yeah, we'll talk about that in part two. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pods to, um, to have a look at that. And um, Wolves then, part one, we will look back on the week that has just gone and I did promise you some wins were coming and uh, <laughs> whether through my own naivety or blind optimism, but we got them. I don't think we got the wins in the fashion that any of us expected. So talk us through your experience of Molyneux because we've spent days and days unpacking it and I don't think any of it still makes any sense really. I must be honest, I've given less thought to the actual game than I thought I would have done post-match. I think the result was so massive on the back of the the Norwich win that it was all that really mattered and a little bit like Norwich, but even more so, I think, because two wins back-to-back makes such a huge difference to the Premier League table. There's plenty to pick apart from it and there would actually be plenty to criticise from the performance, particularly the first half. And although Marsh felt that Leeds were better at the start of the second half. They weren't really getting back into it until um, Jimenez got got sent off. But this week has just all been about results in the way that this part of the season is all about results. We went to Leicester with Marsh and I I still think Leeds played well there. I think that is probably the best 90 minutes they've had under him. It's probably the only game so far where we've really seen what Marsh's football is likely to be. I think at this point, it's still difficult to say uh, with 100% clarity what his team is going to look like, you know, in say six months time, I think we're still waiting for the tactics to take hold, waiting to see for a plan to, to properly drop into place. But you can only go for so long in the position leads are in and with the season at the stage where it's at saying, well, we've played well the weekend, didn't get anything, but we played well. And you know, that's, that's something to take from it because ultimately it isn't something to take from it. You need to take points from these games. And with Norwich, it created a little bit of breathing space and it created a little bit of a gap but I thought it was quite interesting when he was asked after the Wolves game, Marsh, about you know the league table and everything else. He, he spoke about the Everton game the night before and Everton winning deep into injury time against Newcastle with 10 men, a game they, they should really have lost. And Marsh said, I saw them win last night and I didn't care really because what they're doing doesn't really make any difference to us, even though it, it kind of does. You know, Them picking up re- results or dropping points is not going to make a difference if we're not doing anything either. And actually, I think the Everton game, as much as it felt like a bit of a kick in the teeth, was quite a good way of reminding everybody that one Gelhart goal against Norwich was not going to do it. You know, that was not going to be enough in itself. And as big a result as that was, and a you know, crazy moment that it was when Gelhart scored, that wasn't the difference alone between staying up and, and going down. But two wins back to back 
achieved like this and, and in the space of a week could well be the difference. Seven points is a really, really big margin to the bottom three. That puts a lot of pressure on the clubs who are in the bottom three. And I think you've gone from the real severe doubt of the Aston Villa game and everybody coming away from that wondering, is this terminal actually? Is, is this going to happen? To suddenly now, I think most people would say it does look odds on that Leeds will stay up. Oh, you've done this before, hey? You've done this before. Yeah, I have. Um, I have. And, and I still think they're two or three results away, but I think only two or three results away. And they've got Southampton and they've got Watford at the other side of the international break. Watford would be that classic Leeds scenario where they find a way in that game to drag themselves back into it, um, you know, because that is so often how it goes. But they're in a position now, Leeds, where if they win another couple of games, they're probably safe, realistically. Whereas looking at the bottom three, they are all now in a situation where they need a huge number of points in a short period of time. And we're talking about teams who have not amassed many points so far this season. So if you're looking at where the pressure lies, it is clearly suddenly away from Ellen Road. Well, let's talk about that stuff towards the back end of the podcast. We're going to have a look because we've got no game to preview. We'll have a look at the sort of what remains in the season for Leeds, other teams, and then where we go from here. The Wolves game, though, did you get the impression that we kind of saw Leeds at their worst in a way in that first half an hour? Because we'd actually, we'd had a bit of a a bright-ish start in the first 20 minutes, but then it all just quickly collapsed, didn't it, when Bamford got injured and then you concede one goal and that's it. It looked like game over. But um, there were some green shoots in there as well. They definitely were and there were a couple of really big chances early on, the Bamford one and, and the Rodrigo one but obviously as the game goes on we chat a lot in the, the press box about what we're seeing and, and how it's feeling. I thought it felt edgy for Leeds in, in that first period before Bamford went off. It wasn't terrible and it was very even but there was just that sense of when Wolves properly went at them it looked a bit wobbly and you, you felt that there might be goals coming and they didn't recover at all from losing Bamford. I mean I think that was a, a really, like psychologically, that was a problem because here's this player that you've been waiting for so long to come back. He plays, obviously, first half against Norwich and then he gets 20 minutes against Wolves and he pulls up with what seems to be a recurrence of the injury that, that he'd had. It was pretty clear that he was pointing to his foot, that there was a, an issue there and he's stretching for the ball. It, it wasn't a secret that he wasn't 100% fit. You know That was why it was only 45 minutes against Norwich because he isn't up to the, the point of playing 90 minutes yet. And it did seem to unsettle everything. Um, so it, the game kind of swung from being a bit edgy but fairly even to Wolves completely dominating the back end of the half and scoring two goals, which I think when it comes to working out what needs to be done with this squad and this team, that that I think highlights one of the things that has to be looked at pretty clearly, which is the weakness that Leeds have down the flanks and, and the ability of other teams and seem to be doing this more and more of sucking your fullbacks forward, breaking into the space behind and creating a situation where Leeds are just, it's just impossible for Leeds to defend it. And the goals weren't identical, but they were not far off identical. They were pretty similar, scored from similar positions, created in a similar sort of way. And I didn't see a way back. I mean, at, at halftime, I, I really didn't think Leeds were going to turn that on its head. And as I say, Marsh felt that after halftime, he said to them, the players at halftime, we can't feel sorry for ourselves. You know, you, you've, got to, you've got to try and make something happen here. But it really was the, the Jimenez red card that, that changed things completely. What I would say is that I think they can take a lot of credit from the fact that in those circumstances with Jimenez off the field, I kind of tweeted saying, man advantage, half an hour to go. They've got to make something happen here. You know, at the very least, you've got to score once and get yourself back into it so it changes the, the complexion of it. And I think it would have been it would have been a bad, bad night for Marsh had it finished 2-0 um, against 10 men for, for 35 minutes. 
But as soon as the first goal went in, and you often see this with Leeds, and, and you know, this this often happens when you're ahead and suddenly you, you lose control. As soon as the first goal went in, it just felt completely different. Just to pull it back to the first half, it, it felt a little bit like we were seeing things that it was it's a different style to Bielsa and essentially the same result that we were playing quite well in spells, creating some chances. And then when they scored, it just looked so easy. And I think even though the goals are different to the type of goals we, concede, we were conceding under Bielsa, there wasn't the same thing of them strolling through midfield. What you have instead is people strolling down the edge of the pitch, pulling it back and a team scoring because Villa did it. Then it happened a couple of times in this game. And you're thinking... Has it changed, or have we have we just changed the method of this? But the result is going to be essentially the same. It's changed to some extent, but it hasn't changed a great deal. In as much as you haven't taken a team who were starting to underperform badly under Bielsa and, and conceding a lot of goals, and and transformed them into a team who suddenly look a hundred percent more sure of themselves. We'll get onto this when we talk about the interview with Marsh. But I still feel like we need time yet, and there's so many variables in this, like the transfer window coming up. But time yet to work out what this team are actually going to be further down the line. But this isn't really a, an optimum part of the season and situation when, you t- when you're taking on a squad who are in danger of relegation. It's not a, an ideal situation to change things particularly rapidly and it, and it is ultimately about results. But what was really apparent after Bamford went off and particularly once Wolves got in front was that there was a complete breakdown of the ball linking between the defence and the midfield. There was no link at all really between the midfield and the attacking line in front of them. And it was like a team who were a bit paralysed. They were stuck in their own half. It wasn't easy to get out. Um, there wasn't too much structure to the play. And it did feel like it did feel like Wolves' game at that point. And, and given that Marsh had said, you know, spoken specifically beforehand about the fact that if Wolves get in front, we're going to be in trouble. You know, Wolves at 2-0 up, everybody would have been putting the mortgage on, on that result. I mean, it just looked like the sort of situation that Wolves always play for and the sort of situation that they would have been extremely confident of closing out. Even with a man off, I didn't hold out any hope, I've got to be honest, which is, is maybe indicative of my mind to have these things. But with it being Wolves, I think of, I thought of all the teams in the league that are probably set up to just ride this out and just just waste time and kind of just keep possession in, in their own half and just frustrate us more yeah, than just anything. drop deeper and deeper. Yeah, yeah. and they'll make it difficult for us and we might get one back, but ultimately we're not going to get anything out of it. But I wonder when Bruno Lage looks back at the game and, and he was quite aggrieved about the red card. I didn't think it was that controversial a second yellow, I've got to be honest. No. I mean, he goes for it, he sticks his foot in for it, he does dangle his foot in for it. And I always feel with those challenges, if two players go for the ball, the player who doesn't get it, if he gets the man, is is going to get booked. Exactly, I mean, I that's exactly what Michael said all week. I yeah. didn't think that was yeah. a uh, controversial decision at all. I thought, it was a, I thought it was a second booking. But I wonder whether Lage would look now and think that trying to sit deep and trying to suck it up for 35 minutes was a mistake because they, they didn't have much of an attacking structure once Jimenez went off and they didn't have much of an attacking outlet. outlet. And whether or not Leeds are good this season or poor, and, and they have been poor for a lot of it, they still have players who will turn it on from time to time. They still have players who will produce things. You know, they do have quick wingers. It can happen. And it seemed to me, and, and I think with hindsight, Wolves might think this, that it, it was basically set up once they started to drop deep to be a scenario where if Leeds scored, Wolves were going to panic and suddenly wonder if they were going to be able to drag themselves through to to the final whistle. And and two goals in, in such quick succession meant that the heads to go completely. I mean, there's a great video of the second goal, the Rodrigo one, of Bolly just kind of wandering about the box. And that combined with that ridiculous clearance that was just skied up into the air in the box, you suddenly had a defence that has been so good this season. I mean, defensive record is, is fantastic. 
who I think I said in my report, like looked like they'd been thrown together as a dare. You know, it's like what <laughs> they didn't didn't really know what they were doing and what was going on. And what happened was basically they got sucked into the sort of game they hate playing, which is kind of like basketball back and forwards, goals all over the place. It's all a bit of a mess. It's all a bit of chaos. That is not Bielsa. Goals. It was a Bielsa game, wasn't it? Funnily it, it, enough, it, yeah. it kind of was. Yeah, and it did seem like they completely forgot their training. They were not going down and in the same way as we saw it. But we saw it on the road, they got the lead and they were just, it was just injury after injury. Anytime we got momentum, someone yeah. would stay down. They sort of forgot to do it, I think. It, yeah. felt like, it felt like they panicked to the extent that it was like, well, I don't know, just, just keep kicking it upfield. Well, but you see, what happened was that Leeds scored so quickly back to back that it became a game that Leeds, uh, the Wolves knew they should be winning and it felt obligated to try and win. So rather than being able to kill time and, and to sit on it, I think particularly from the, the, the vibes that were coming from the crowd... They felt, we have to play here. We can't just kill this, you know. We have to try and get something out of it. And it played beautifully into into Leeds' hands. But we did say, sitting there with about 10 minutes to go, Leeds will win this. Leeds will win this. It was just set up that way. And there was enough in the way of wobbly defending from Wolves to make you think something is going to something is gonna drop. It reminds me, I guess, of what it must have been like in the playoff semi-final for Derby when they just got that sniff of it and just turned it around. Um, yeah. When you just saw the heads go on the other side. Because... If you had to believe the Wolves narrative with this, it was an unjust red card and Kevin Friend basically handed the game to Leeds and that's the moment upon win on which it, it pivoted. But that's not the full story, is it? Because they did collapse and Leeds just went rampant. It's the moment on which it pivoted. But as I say, I, I think it was the right decision. And so was the booking for Jimenez in the first half. And, and he has a, a tremendous knack of managing to look injured whenever he fouls somebody and um, whenever he happens to be in danger of a yellow card, that seems to be a, a definite trend. But I thought straight away he'll get booked for this because Melee's got the ball. And okay, Melee went in hard on that and it wasn't, you know, from him it was an aggressive challenge, but it was a fair challenge and it was the keeper going for the ball. If Jimenez hadn't dangled a leg out to try and win it and hadn't specifically gone after the ball, then I think you would have said that's pretty harsh. But as it was... I really didn't think there was there was too much controversy in that. I think it was made to look controversial because Wolves lost the game and lost the composure and the shape. You know, it was the, the pivotal moment, but it did come down to two things. It came down to Leeds realising that the opportunity was there and actually finding a way to grasp it and Wolves just not being able to reset themselves. And I think I think tactically they got it wrong in the last half hour as well because they were they were trying to be too defensive, I think. What did you make of the the winner and that moment? How did you experience that then in the press box? Because we were in here and we just went absolutely batshit. <laughs> just just one of those weeks where it feels as if suddenly everything is going. Suddenly things are actually dropping for them. And it wasn't its own way as bonkers as Norwich, but it was different. And it's hard to explain why it was different. It just was. But I mean, Ailing as well, he, he never seems to score anything other than big goals, whether they're spectacular or really important in their timing. And again... Please for him because he hasn't had a particularly great season and, and I think, like with a few others, probably going to come under consideration now about what needs to happen in the summer and whether it right back. I, I actually think he's had two really good games, you know, and I, I think particularly back end of the, the Wolves game, really, really influential, not just with the goal, but the way he was playing. But there is going to now be that consideration in the summer. What do we do with the squad? What do we do with the team? On the basis of this season and, you know, using cold hard facts, what needs to change? You know, like what, what needs to, to happen to prevent this season repeating itself? But he is one of the players who has given absolutely everything to these last four years. Whatever you think about form or results or anything else, there are so many players here who 
would, I think, break their hearts to, to get relegated in the same way as I think it would be else's, you know, and, and everybody who's been invested in this for so long. So for him to get the goal was a, was a nice moment. Can you remember anything like it in terms of the stakes being so high and like Leeds absolutely in do or die territory in the Premier League, absolutely need to get wins on the board? Because I've been looking back through, we've got a list of like late goals here on the sheet in front of us. The only one where I can feel like there was a similar significance is going a long, long way back. The playoff semi-final against Oldham in 1987. I mean, I was only a, a small boy myself, but I can remember we went to to Boundary Park and Leeds had won the first leg with a last-minute goal, funnily enough, from Keith Edwards. But then Oldham went 2-0 up in the 89th minute, thought they'd won it 2-1 on aggregate, but then Leeds went straight up the other end to score and take it to extra time and won on away goals after extra time to get through to the to the final, which they lost obviously to Charlton in the uh, in the replay at Birmingham. But when a whole season comes down to a couple of minutes, that, and maybe Housen as well at Carlisle, the only two I can think where the significance of the entire season has rested on Leeds scoring a goal. I mean, there was the Viduka at Arsenal, wasn't there? Which I think we, we wouldn't have been down had we not won that, but it was it was the thing that, saved, that ultimately saved us and it gave us breathing space. It was 2003, wasn't it? Housen was a... Fabulous moment. It was it was so good. I mean, probably one of the, the best moments of, of my early years writing about the club. The only thing on that night was that it was heading to extra time anyway. So obviously it settled the tie and somebody needed to settle the tie. And it, it was it was fantastic the way that it happened. But that game would still have been winnable. You know, there would still have been another half hour in, in which to win it. Um, you're right. It's, it's really difficult to think of the stakes being as high as this. And, and even the Hernandez goal at Swansea, you wouldn't have wanted to have been without that because it would have been two points less and, and it would have, you know, it would have squeezed the table up a little bit more than it was. But I think even by that weekend, a lot of us were still thinking that they've just about got it here, you know, and it, and as long as the points keep coming in some form, then they probably will get over the line. Whereas these two results feel like they've taken leads from the, the really, really abject night against Villa and pretty poisonous night as well. You know, like the, it was like the end of the tether Villa. And I think when you have an evening like that, if you don't nip it in the bud straight away, it festers and it gets worse and you kind of invite a repeat of that in, in subsequent home games that the frustration builds. And it, it needed to be it needed to be the Norwich game. It had to be the Norwich game. But as I say, going back to what Mars said about Everton beating Newcastle, the Norwich game was not going to be enough. And it probably was slightly important or slightly helpful last week that for all the buzz of Gilhart's winner, you got to Wolves and you got to Molyneux thinking, actually, they need a result here as well. You know, after last night, that three points from this is, is good, but not great. And then six points from the two games is huge. And, you know, as I say, it, it doesn't decide this, but it means that Leeds are so much closer to safety than, than the teams below them. And it does just put massive pressure on the, the three that are down there. If we're doing do or die comebacks as well, we really have to mention the Bristol Rovers game. Yeah. Because we were behind in that and people will... We'll pick that out as a very obvious one. Yeah, I was thinking of late goals because mm. we started time to ride that one out, didn't we? But yeah. Um, that, yeah, in terms of last-minute goals, there have been a few, haven't there? But yeah, that's obviously right up there in terms of jeopardy levels, isn't it? It, it felt a little bit like that game, in a way, because it was one that you, you start thinking, oh, it's happening again. We've, this, we've this, seen this movie before. Yeah, Because yeah. I, I, my feeling after Norwich was people are getting a little bit carried away with this. It's only Norwich. They've got 17 points. They're, they are definitely the worst team in the league. We've scraped past them. This isn't safety yet. We, we've got loads, loads of games to go, and then this was, admittedly, completely out of the fire. But we, uh, we've managed to drag a win out. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine just going back to what you were saying then about the atmosphere spiralling if 
Leeds had drawn against Norwich in that game, what the full-time whistle would have been like had we not scored that winner. I think that would have been a bit uncomfortable, shall we say. I almost felt on that Sunday like the, the reaction would have been more subdued than the Villa game because I think the levels of shock and bewilderment when Norwich scored were so intense that I'm not sure anybody would have really known what to do with themselves. And it, it was just incredibly sobering. But if you draw with Norwich and then you go away to Wolves and you lose 2-0 and suddenly you know five of the six points you've picked up have, have gone and rather than being seven points clear, you, you're two points clear. This would have been a horribly, horribly tense international break and, and we would not be having the conversation that we're having today without a doubt, especially because it's Southampton on the other side of the, the international break, which is on paper one of the more winnable games. I mean, there's some really difficult games coming up, um, which I don't expect Leeds to get a lot from. But after that, Watford away, which could have had so much riding on it. And it's not that it won't have anything riding on it now, but it might just not be the same level of stakes. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So you've met Jesse Marsh now then, Phil. Proper sit down one-on-one with him. You can read that on The Athletic. It's a good read getting into his background, sort of how he got from where he started in Wisconsin through to arriving at Ellen Road. What did you make of him as a person? How did you find him in person? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by him because I think what we've seen a lot of so far is kind of coaching veneer, if you know what I mean. I think this interview, it's been a nice sort of glimpse at the man behind that, if you like, the human, because I think humanising him is a good thing. He's also been very lighthearted, I think, in the press conferences and he's he's made a big effort to be personable and, and to, to come across well. And, and I think more than anything, to not be defensive about some pretty key issues like, for example, replacing Bielsa, like, for example, being American and, you know, that thing that, that people are going to gonna cling to. But speaking to him one-to-one, you did definitely see a, a more serious side to him and I think got far more insight into actually how hard he's worked to to get to this point. I, I think if, if you had it in your head that this was a kind of weird appointment and how has this happened and how has he how is this guy wound up at, at Leeds as, as head coach? When you speak to him about how long he's been preparing for coaching, he was saying that when he was 26 and playing in the States, he, he made a concerted decision to start thinking about management because he, he wanted to do it and he knew it would be around, around the corner. So he would travel to Europe to visit other clubs to see how different environments worked, how different different clubs operated. He did his pro licence in Scotland, UEFA pro licence. So when he was coaching New York Red Bulls, he was flying over in international breaks to do the work um, in Scotland, to do the courses, to do the training, to, to make sure that he, he qualified for that. He's been at Leipzig with, with Ralph Rannick, which he felt was a, a really key point in his career, opening his eyes to the, the sort of detail um, that you, you need to apply and, and that, that you need to, to pay attention to as a top level head coach. 
And it clearly is a, a very, very big passion for him. I mean, the interesting thing is that, you know, we, we did speak about the, the American side of this and, and what I would say, I think, are the, the kind of existing tropes about Americans and, and football being a, a pretty odd mix. And when he, when he was five in the States, he grew up in Wisconsin and he went to visit a cousin of his in Chicago who was a little bit older than him and, and they played out in the, in the yard um, for the afternoon and, and kicked the ball around. And his cousin said to him, look, this is, you know, this is football, this is soccer because Marsh had no idea what it was or at least had no idea of the concept of this being an actual kind of sport. And so he went home and the next morning said to his parents, you know, I, I want to play football and I want to join a football team. And they said, well, okay, but we don't really know what this is. You know, what, what is football? And also with no idea how to go about doing this because Marsh and his mates used to play ice hockey and basketball and baseball and all the, the conventional American sports. But they took him down to the local YMCA and they went up to the front desk and they said to them, do you have a football league? You know, does this exist here? And they said, well, yeah, it does. And you can sign up next week. This is when we're doing it. And that was pretty much for him, the kind of genesis of his story of getting into, into football in a country which he says, you know, quite openly, 1970s in America's Midwest, football, to say the very least, was a niche hobby. I mean, nobody really was, was playing football or not that many people were. And as far as a future career, you know, again, said, said quite openly, there was absolutely, absolutely no way as a teenager he was looking at football and thinking, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Struck me as quite thoughtful. Um, yeah. In the interview, he thinks about football quite a lot. I thought it was really, really interesting reflecting on his spell at Leipzig and him basically just saying, look, this ain't working. Life's too short. Yeah. I'm, so I'm not going to do this anymore. I might as well stop doing this. And it takes a hell of a lot of, uh, I don't know, self-assurance, confidence, confidence in yourself to walk away from an opportunity like that because it's never going to look good on your CV, getting fired, leaving mutually, whatever it might be, when you leave like a high-profile job, the highest-profile job you've got um, up to that point. Well, very much. And yet he just decided that it's not for him. This ain't working, so why persist? No, very much so. And, and this strikes me as quite a, a well, not quite, a very big second chance for him. This is his second opportunity to manage a big club in a major European league. And OK, Leipzig are at a different competitive level. It's, it's Champions League over there. But it's extremely high profile at Leeds. And, and it will be. It'll be high profile for him in the States. It'll be high profile for him in the UK. The backdrop to what was going on at Leipzig was, he's talked about this with us already. And he's, he's basically said, look, when I got to Leipzig, I kind of realised that the way the tactical approach I was going for wasn't going to work with the players who were there. They, they obviously weren't receptive enough to it. I don't think he felt that his interaction with the club was perfect either. I don't think he felt like they, they clicked. And he sort of held his hands up and, and said, me going and them deciding that they wanted a change totally made sense. You know, it's very hard for anybody to argue that I should have been given more time. It, it, just, it just really wasn't working. But at the same time, as his wife, Kim, had been diagnosed with, with breast cancer, which obviously a lot of stress and strain in, in the background and away from the job. And he was saying that it was quite difficult to keep your mind on one thing when all that was, was going on. And she's recovered. Actually, she's recovered well and is, is undergoing just standard checks now, but they, they seem very, very positive about it. But he felt that that gave him a bit of clarity at Leipzig in thinking to himself, if this isn't working here and if I'm not enjoying this and if it isn't going to pan out the way that it should do, then maybe it is better if I go. Life is a bit too short for that and and there would be other opportunities further down the line. So I think he, he would look back on Leipzig as a disappointment because he would not have gone there wanting it to end as quickly as it, it did. And you know how it is for managers and head coaches. It's never great when you've got something on like that on your CV because people do tend to look at it and say, you know, not just journalists or, or fans, but 
potential employers as well look at it and say, what happened there? You know, why why did that not pan out? But at the same time, I don't think he regrets the decision to go, you know, for, for it to all end. I think he, he kind of feels like it was for the best. During his time, like in the Red Bull stable, he described himself as a, as a company man. And so it's interesting to hear you say that maybe he felt that he wasn't a good fit for, for the Leipzig arm of that particular empire. Do you think maybe he needs to break outside the boundaries of that now? Because, you know, the, the Red Bull model, while accepted, is not particularly well loved in football, is it? It's not liked as a, as a concept because the way that they try to erase the history of like Austria Salzburg, for example. So they're not universally loved. He described himself as a company man. Do you think he has an awareness of, of how that is perceived outside Red Bull? Well, culturally, they are extremely unpopular, Red Bull. They, they do, it has to be said, have a habit of building some pretty good teams. I mean, you, uh, from a purely football perspective, you cannot deny that Leipzig are, have become an extremely competitive European force and Salzburg are dominating in, in Austria, although, you know, let's not pretend that the budget isn't a massive part of this. He's going to have to break out of the Red Bull model on the basis that he isn't in the Red Bull model or, or the Red Bull stable anymore. But... um. I mean, we, we didn't get too far into the Red Bull aspect of it, but he, he's very clear that, you know, a lot of his learning and a lot of his teaching and his development has come within Red Bull and therefore it has had a big influence on him. But I think you have to adapt to circumstances and you have to adapt to, to different leagues. And and I don't think necessarily that exactly what was going on at um, Salzburg or exactly what he wanted to do at, at Leipzig will necessarily translate into the Premier League. And, and he did say that himself in his very, very first press conference. There's a lot of things I want to do, a lot of ideas I have, but it can't all be done at once. And also you have to be a little bit pragmatic in deciding what is best for this squad, what is best for us, given the players that I've got, what, what should I be doing? And and that was one of the lessons from Leipzig, I think. The lesson he would he would learn more than anything, I think, is that he shouldn't have gone there in the first place because it wasn't set up for him. But I think having got in the door he will maybe reflect on the fact that he needed to be more pragmatic or think differently about what to do with the squad because his way just didn't seem to work. The way he talks about Ranić, it seems like he's taken on board the majority of his ideas. What do we know about Marsh's own diversions from that, I guess? Because sometimes it feels like he's just he's he's spoken to Ranić and gone, I'm going to do all that. So what, what, does, what does he bring on top of it? Well, the, the thing about Ranić was that he said that in his head he felt that, then this is Marsh, he felt that he'd done a lot of studying of football, a lot of work on coaching. He thought he was a pretty detailed guy. He thought as a coach, you know, attention to detail was there. And then he went to join up with Rannick as his assistant at Leipzig. And I think rather than it being a tactical thing with Rannick specifically, I think it what happened there was more that um, Marsh was exposed to the absolute extreme detail that I mean, he said that specifically Germans go into, you know, in German clubs. But I think I would say these days that Premier League clubs are exactly the same. I mean, there will be nowhere in the world with a, a, an analytical department set up to work harder than Bielsa's at Leeds. I mean, the, the attention to detail there was absolutely extraordinary. But I think what it did was it taught Marsh about how detailed you have to be and, and how much attention you have to pay to so much of what's going on around you, systems and formations and data and analysis. I wouldn't have said from looking at, at Rannick's teams that you necessarily see Marsh's team there. You know, I wouldn't say the, the tactics look identical. But the difficulty at the moment is that I still don't feel like we're at the point where we can say what Marsh's team is going to be. You know, in the way that with Bielsa, after about three weeks of games, and, and it is different because Bielsa came in in the summer, so there was that 
you know, there was that big buffer period of pre-season where he, he was able to teach them so much. But you kind of knew after two or three weeks what Bielsa's team were and what they were going to do and exactly how they were going to play. I think it will be on the other side of the, the summer where you start to look at Marsh's team and think, right, OK, this is this is what the framework is going to be over a sustained period of time. Because I think over the, the early games with him, it's been a bit back and forward and some of the games have all, almost been too fraught and, and you know too frantic, like at Wolves, for you to properly get a handle on that. I do wonder, and it's going slightly off Jesse Marsh to an extent, that have you seen the uh, the comments from Victor Orta this mm. week that have caused uh, well, one or two eyebrows to be raised among the Leeds fan base where... Uh, is it, it's a, it was a seminar or something he was attending and he's been quoted at this this seminar and he said that the club have learned from the Bielsa era and they're going to maintain a small squad next season, which you would argue has been one of the major pinch points this season. They will keep 18 core professionals and supplement it with another four from the 23s. And, and well, as I just said there, people are going, well, hang on a second, the squad was the problem this season, the size of it. it it's cost us hugely, you would argue. So why try and do that again? But the question I wondered was, do you think in bringing in Marsh, and we know that Marsh is Orta's man, that he's maybe trying to get a little bit of the, the Red Bull model and, and apply it to Leeds? Because uh, the other comments that he's um, that have been attributed to him are saying, we want to look at bringing in players still with potential and basically increase their value so there's there's more of an asset for the club, that kind of thing. Well, that's kind of been the model at Leeds. You know, going back to the start of the Radrazani era, it didn't particularly work initially, but Rafinha been perfect example Ilan Mele as well even Brendan Aronson uh, who they went for in January from Salzburg and bidding £20 million for him he was somebody who is at the age where you could see his value if he does well and if he copes in the Premier League certainly see his value appreciating and and that I think is, is going to be the model that leads until such time if there ever is a time where they get to the level where they can actually compete in the market and sign 100% proven players in, in the way that you, you really top clubs do as far as the, the squad size goes, and, and I should just say on Aronson, I can't see, given that you know Marsh was at Salzburg when when Aronson went there, I can't A, believe that Leeds didn't kind of seek, because they did seek references about Aronson before they bid for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't believe that Marsh wouldn't have been one of the people they would have wanted to, to speak to, to get some proper insight into him. And I also think it's highly unlikely that their interest in Aronson will be in any way diminished now that Marsh is in the door. You would assume that, you know, they've already said they'll go back for him in the summer and you would assume that that, that will follow. The squad size, I, I think it has to be bigger than it is. I think that the size of the squad has become more of an issue because of the scale of the injuries. And the scale of the injuries that leads this season is is massive. Even at the point where Bielsa left, they had twice as many injuries recorded as the average Premier League team expects in a season. That was with 12 games to go. And since then, we've had Tyler Roberts. We've had you know another injury for Bamford. It has built and built and built this season to a level that just cannot continue. You know, they, they've got to, to bring that under control. So it's a bit of a, a chicken and egg situation. Are the injuries so bad because the squad is small? Or is the small squad being made worse by unlucky injuries? And I think you have to say that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And I think it would be wrong to go out of this season and to assume... I, I think the injuries will be less severe next year. I, I think they will be. But I think it would be wrong to assume that with this size of squad there is no risk of, of this season repeating itself. They, they need to up the quality, but I do think they need to up the numbers as well. And and if you look at the way that now they've not completely separated, but have kind of re- returned to the model of a first team and a 23 squad, and there is some crossover, but not to the, the same extent that there was under Bielsa when the, you know, the training squads could be huge. There could be lots of, of players involved. 
there will be 23s coming through who will be on the fringes, but I don't think we can have a scenario where your bench is filled with eight or nine of them. And back to Marsh then, because we will talk more about what happens next in part three. One of his much vaunted qualities is his man management. And there does seem to be a real togetherness now with the squad. I think we saw it in the celebrations at Wolves with that with that winner, Calvin, and all the rest of them charging across the pitch, which was uh, which was great, unless you're a Wolves fan. How did you find him then in terms of his sort of general warmth? Did you warm to him when you when you sat in the room with him? Because okay. I imagine that there's managers you've encountered, Dennis Weiss, for example, who perhaps a little bit spikier. Yeah, no, he's he's not like that at all. He's he's very very engaging and and very welcoming, genuinely nice guy. I think uh, and. And I, th- I think that's probably come across already. I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that people will will at this stage be able to to take a clear judgment on him because it just isn't the circumstances to be able to do that. You know, with with the the season where it is, but he speaks very well. And I'm always. I, I think it's important to say that speaking well is no is not indicative of what's coming. The point about this is that there are a lot of variables involved, and Marsh is one of them. But the transfer window is another. If they do the right things in the summer he's in a far better position to actually make good on, on his intentions and, and promises or, or aims and, and ambitions than he is if the transfer window doesn't really work out and, and he doesn't have the resources he needs. But he was he was pretty careful in what he did promise. You know, he said, short term, we need to stay up. Longer term, I need to introduce a proper pattern of play that, that is my style. I need to keep developing the academy so it impacts on both the playing squad and the business model, which totally makes sense. But he did say... Little by little, we do need to start creeping towards winning trophies now. You know, we do need to move in that direction. And he made the point that it's not easy and that it's not not an overnight thing and, and not something that you just do by by clicking your fingers. But that, I think, is what you kind of need to be hearing. I, I, without being ridiculous, you know, t- spoken about and, and criticised a little bit, the, the, the talk of Europe in three to five years, you know, want to be Europa League team, this, that and the other, and then suddenly you're down in 16th, 17th position. But I think if the club are making progress and the club want to make progress, then those are the things that you have to kind of be aiming for, aren't they? Otherwise, what is the what is the end goal? It'd be amazing to see what a trophy win would do for the club, don't you think? Don't you think it would help us shed so much of the old skin? Like It always feels to me like, like when we spoke to Otto in your absence, Phil, when he came in, he was talking about the sort of inherent negativity that sort of, I'm looking at you, Michael, here, um, <laughs> That sort of um, permeates a lot of Leeds fans. Like people saying, "Well, if we, you know, if we got to a playoff final, we'd only lose there anyway." That kind of uh, outlook. It felt like the championship win did something of that. Mm-hmm. It did feel like that. It fixed us to a point. It maybe didn't fix us as much as we thought. <laughs> I think the first season up gave us a bit of a a bit of a false sense of security in the Be- Premier League. But, I think. Do you, but do you think that's because everybody saw promotion as the finish line, if you like, for sixteen years, and actually? Perhaps this season is the real reality with the reality sunk in of what the Premier League is, and actually, oh God, we actually need to like keep moving forward, otherwise this this will all go bad again because we all went we need to get up, we need to get up, we got up, this is brilliant, let's enjoy it. first season's been mostly a laugh, and now here we are down near the plug hole, <laughs> yeah, but tranquility is just never permanent in football, is it, and it no. doesn't matter which club you're talking about or how good something feels at, at a certain point in time, invariably you revert back to the tension and the stress of you know the dips in form and the, and the dips in progress that that make you make you worry. I agree with Michael. I think skin was definitely shed by promotion, without a doubt. And the funny thing about trophies is that it's just never been on the radar. That has it. You know, because Leeds haven't been in the Premier League for a start. There's no expectation when you're down in the Championship of winning the League Cup or the FA Cup or, or anything that you would class. Not as even a, the Johnstons paint. 
No, no, absolutely. Beaten by Carlisle. Anything you would class as a major trophy. You know, it's just not even on the on the agenda. And it, it's a funny thought, actually, to think of Leeds back at Wembley for the FA Cup or, or the League Cup because it's not quite before our, our lifetimes in the, in the League Cup, but it just about is, you know, for those FA Cup finals in, in the 70s, I wasn't alive. I don't think either of, of you two no. um, would have been either. No. So, yeah, definitely. But one of the, I don't know, if I said sad things about football these days is that rather than people sort of saying, let's try and win the FA Cup, let's try and win the League Cup. It is all about building, isn't it? It's all about projects and bigger pictures. And it has to be, you know, that's the destruction of the game now. And if you're going to go anywhere in it, and if you're going to, at the very least, if you're going to stand still, then you you have to have something that lets you stand still and doesn't just fall apart beneath you. But I like the idea of Leeds getting back in the mix for actual trophies, major trophies, because it's what you, it's what you get out of bed for. No game to preview this time then, but we have games left in the season. We have eight of them. Uh, some of the clubs around us have 11, uh, but Leeds in a in a much healthier position now. We've got the league table in front of us. Leeds currently sitting in, in 16th on 29 points, seven points away from Watford, eight points away from Burnley, which means if Burnley are to catch us, they're going to need to win all three of their games in hand and then continue to win thereafter. So how do you feel generally about it overall? Did, did you feel like that Wolves result was the moment where we can see safety potentially. Not securing it, but we can see it. I think the club will be able to see it in front of them now. And again, realising that it will take another another couple of results. I mean, Burnley's running, when, when it was extremely tight at the bottom, particularly after the, the Villa game, Burnley's running was one of the things that was concerning me because they've got City at home on the other side of the international break, which they'll almost certainly lose. But after that, for them, it's Everton, Norwich, West Ham, Southampton, Wolves, Watford, Aston Villa, Spurs, Newcastle. A lot of teams in there in or pretty close to the bottom half of the table, some who are right around them in the table as well. And it doesn't really figure at, at this this stage of the season that actually the, the easier games are the easier games. I mean, I, I had Norwich at home down, you know, as the easiest game of the season on paper but actually in the circumstances it's completely different to that isn't it there's massive tension on it and and real pressure but suddenly the the gap is is wide and and like you say in order for Burnley to catch Leeds they need to win all three of the games in hand and experience tells you that games in hand very rarely equate to points in the bag I think Um, we we need to keep a careful eye on the Watford away game don't we I think that's very very important I mean I think beating Southampton will help because there's a a really, really tough set of fixtures coming up for everyone else that same weekend. And it's a real opportunity to almost put it to bed. And we, we know that sort of internally, the club have identified about 35 points. They're yeah. thinking we'll, we'll probably do it. So we're talking a push, probably six more points to make us safe. But it's fascinating. I mean, we've got the sheet here. Um, I spent a bit of time last night detailing all the fixtures for all the bottom seven, sort of Newcastle downwards. And then I separately pulled out the fixtures of the clubs. We've all got to play each other in the bottom seven. And there's quite a lot. And you look at that and it will either make you nervous or excited depending on your on your disposition. But yeah, we've got Burnley, Everton, Watford, Leeds, Norwich, Burnley, Watford, Brentford, Newcastle, Norwich, Watford, Burnley, Everton, Brentford, Burnley, Newcastle, Brentford, Leeds, Watford, Everton to be a, a arranged. I may have repeated one or two there. I don't know. I've got, I got a lot of uh, Norwiches and Burnleys there's in there. A, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there. I mean, you, you're right what you say about the Southampton game. If, if Leeds win that, um, and they're not on a great run, Southampton. If Leeds win that, they go up to 32 points, which potentially means, you know, 10 points between them and the bottom three. That does almost give you licence to have a nightmare at Watford if indeed that is, is how it 
it plays out. But then I kind of feel that if, if you go into Watford with a 10-point lead over Watford, it's set up for you to, to properly exploit that situation, isn't it? To, to take advantage of a crowd who'll be having grave doubts about whether they're, they're going to get out of it. Mm. Um, and ultimately, like Marsh said about the Everton game, if you tick over yourself and you pick up results, then come the end of the season, the table will be fine. And what goes on below you really doesn't matter. And perhaps that will be the big, you know, the big impact of the Wolves game is that it will allow Leeds to think less about what's below them and to think a little bit more about game to game. I know that I know I know players and managers always say that they do this anyway. You know, it's game to game, it's hell games, it's this and that, bloody blah, blah. But it must be very difficult after a game like Villa not to go home and look at the table and think, fucking hell. <laughs> you know, like and and which is pretty much exactly how the whole of Ellen Road felt. Otherwise, you you wouldn't be human, would you? You'd no. be as BLC used to say, if players were robots, you know, my teams would be the the best in the world because um, mm. you do human emotion does come into it, and I think at Burnley or Norwich or Watford, and I'm not being disparaging here, but these are clubs who who have been relegated quite recently and might not class themselves as yo-yo clubs, but out in the the wider world are kind of seen in that way. Particularly Norwich and and Watford, Burnley have, have had a long stretch in the Premier League now, but have always kind of been on on the cusp of it. I think when you're Everton or Leeds and you get sucked into this situation, the volatility is far worse. Frank Lampard is not going to get treated in the same way at Everton if they go down as Sean Dyche is at Burnley. Dyche will get a lot of patience. There'll be people who'll be unhappy and will grumble if if Burnley go. But in the grand scheme, you'd have to say that Dyche has done as much for Burnley as just about any manager and has done as much as realistically he could have done on their budget and, and everything else. Everton going down, Leeds going down. It just there is no generosity mm. in those circumstances, and that's why it fe- that's why the tension is usually worse. It wouldn't be Frank Lampard's fault, of course. No, no, it's the players. Well, well it? he is certainly making sure it doesn't sound like his fault. I'll say that it's, it's quite. I mean, I know we we sort of picked him apart on this week's Square Ball podcast. Um, the, oh, the, that surprises me for, greatly. Not for the first time, but I think that there is a genuine. I mean, you know, quite apart from you know all the Derby stuff and, and all the stuff that went on around Spygate, I find it fascinating that he's using such divisive language at such a crucial time of the season when really you need everybody pulling together, and that's why I like what Marsh has done. He's come into a really really difficult set of circumstances. Hopefully the risk, the gamble that the board took will pay off in that we will stay up. But he's come in and been sympathetic to yeah. the players. You and, wonder and how much of it and... is kind of due to their trajectory as well because Frank Lampard obviously born into a football family, massively successful career, straight into a really good job at Derby. Let's let's be honest about it. It was, it was a very well-funded club at that point that he took it on, straight into the Chelsea job. Everton, another massive club, straight in there. Marsh has had to work truthfully yeah. to get to get himself into this position in a way that Lampard probably hasn't and has a seems to as a result have a lot more humility about it of all the managers down the bottom you would have to say Everton are probably in the worst position communication has been a huge part of what Marsh has done and I asked him in that interview you know what really needed to be solved here when you came in what what were the problems what need, needed to be fixed and he said I don't really want to say fixed because I don't want to imply that a lot of what had gone on here was not good and I don't want to imply that you know, what I'm going to try and do won't be building on a lot of the great work that, that Bielsa did. But he did say, I, I felt that communication would help, broader communication. And, you know, there is a definite difference between the way Bielsa communicates with players and, and a lot of other coaches do. And also to to pick up the intensity of the way the team play and, and to, to go with that and to try and make it make it better. And, and he said, you know, between those two aspects, I felt I could clear the air here. And I think the air did need cleared, not because there was 
mutiny with Bielsa or, or because people had, had downed tools. I think it would just the, the form had just become so bad that everybody was everybody was stressed, everybody was was worried. And you're right. I mean, Marsh has tried to be sympathetic with that. He's tried to empathise with them. From what I can gather after the Villa game, there was no tearing into anybody. And and he didn't come out in that press conference and say, "Well, what am I supposed to do about this?" You know, look at the state of the players' confidence. Yeah. I you know, told them what to do. Yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> like you no. Know, and Lampard is getting dangerously close to that thing of saying, well, what's a manager supposed to do about this? You know, who who could actually solve this? Well, the guy in the job who's getting paid for it, that you know, that is the guy who's supposed to, to fix this and, and supposed to, to get on top of it. So Marsh let the players have it out after the, the Villa game on the Thursday night. Quite a lot said in the changing room, I think. And then the next day at Thorpe Arch, a lot of meetings, a lot of chats, but... Not aggressive, not, not crisis, point, not not crisis talks. No, yeah. not, not in a way that was going to make unhappy players even worse. You know, I think he wanted to get involved in that conversation, but wanted to kind of move it on from, okay, last night was a disaster, but where do we go from here? How do we go from here? We've only got a couple of days to turn around to Norwich. We can't train much because it's too quick. To, you need to recover and everything else. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you all. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to try and... Put arms around shoulders, like with Rodrigo, for example, and I do think you've, you've, that we've noticed the difference with him, um, just in his kind of body language and, and persona, I, I would say. And it is, I think, been the right way to go in these circumstances. I, I think, I think it has. I'm not sure what it's going to achieve. If Everton might still stay up. I mean, they they might do, it. but I'm not sure what it's going to achieve by basically saying this lot are no good. Yeah, it's funny how um, Salim Lamrani's got his book out. Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. come out this week. And I read the excerpt of that, and in it, he mentions a book that Bielsa gave to him, which is called Eleven Rings by Phil Jackson, who is a famous basketball coach. He won 11 NBA titles, hence 11 Rings. So I've just started reading that in the last couple of days, and it's fascinating. Maybe you see, it might be one of those books that kind of goes around the coaching circle, if you like, because there's a lot of young men in there. He mentions about uh, young men in the book, and you wonder if maybe Jesse has been reading it. The early experiences at the YMCA. That's what they're doing. Double A, yeah. Um, But you, you... You were saying you haven't watched The Last Dance. No, no, yeah, um, yeah it's on, on Netflix, it's Netflix which, yeah. you know, which should give you a kick in for that, really. But because that is that is really, really good, despite some of the moaning I've about got, Michael Phil, Jordan I've, and I've, everything. I've got no time to watch Netflix when I'm writing this show, Phil. That's, well, that's true. That's I'm true. So yeah. That. Busy, but no, I was going to say, actually, man. But, but what he, 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 um, he talks about is getting buy in from players. And it seems to me like that's one of the real cornerstones of a successful team is making them all believe in it. And I think you saw it, particularly in the early days of Bielsa, he made them all buy into it. Maybe that started to, to fade away a little bit over time as the result. It lasted for yeah. a long time though. Yeah. It did. And the result, um, the result it was, it was funny actually, I read a piece in The Guardian, uh, which I enjoyed this week, but it led off on Bielsa and the, and the crux of it was, do managers tend to fade in the fourth season? And yes. I thought that's really funny writing that about Bielsa because everybody used to say, well, you know, one year of him or six months of him and the players are all that. Suddenly it's like if, you know, after ten years, is this likely to grind to to halt? It was it was really successful for a long time, and they also just had a different style, you know, a different method of getting people to buy in. But they bought in for him in a way that I've never seen players buy into anything. And obviously, I've like limited experience of the number of clubs I've written about or have been been close to. But acquiring that level of commitment in that summer in two thousand and eighteen was was absolutely extraordinary. Marshall try and do it in a different way and is doing it in a different way. But I think. It was important to do it differently to some extent because nobody else can ever replicate Bielsa. And I think one of the, the big mistakes would have been to have tried to find a Bielsa clone. But to imagine take this job if on. Paul Corbran had come in. The, he'd, well, be, yeah, he'd be able to hide I mean, into that, nothing, wouldn't he? That, 
it's an interesting point that and and it would have been tough for him partly because it's not been identical you know what he's doing at, at Huddersfield I think actually he's he's kind of eased off slightly from what I'm told and I'm, I'm again I, I don't watch Huddersfield closely but I think he's eased off slightly at certain points to kind of help the players um, help manage the players and, and help keep on top of the conditioning but a lot of what he learned under Bielsa seems to have been applied over there or, or certainly parts of it so yes if, if he'd been coming in you would have been looking at somebody that would have been kind of cast as the follow-up to Bielsa who should keep it the same. Whereas in actual fact, it can't really be the same because of how how unique it, it was. I mean, I read the Arrigo Saki book, which was absolutely fantastic, in, Invincibles. And um, I think it was called Invincibles. Mine goes blank, but I'm, I'm, I think that's It sounds right. like an Arsenal um, book, but anyway. It, it, it does, except this was, <laughs> this was AC Milan and um, I would say a, a more stellar team again. But there was loads in that that made me think of Bielsa. Loads about the the things that he focused on and the way he managed players and managed the squad, you, you can see connections between a lot of the, you know, even to different sports like Phil Jackson. What what Jackson did with the Bulls was extraordinary. And he did have an amazing group of, of basketball players there. I mean, I know very little about basketball, but it goes without saying that the, the personalities who were in that Bulls squad were some of the best players ever. And you can't build a dynasty like that without being an incredibly talented coach, but also incredibly talented man manager and man management I think was something that was was going to be crucial in this period to, to take a squad who were struggling and, and were starting to underperform and say to them you do have it in you to get out of this the, um, the name of the book is The Immortals The Immortals sorry how, not The how Invincibles my, How the, My Milan the, team reinvented football the, That's right um, The Invincibles was um, I think Amy Lawrence at the Athletic wrote The Invincibles about the, the Arsenal team who were also very good <laughs> um, but the the Immortals is a if you get time to read it it's quite short which is great because you can whip through it but I read that in a day it was fantastic yeah and the reason I mentioned the, the sort of buy-in principle if that is one of the key metrics of how you get a successful team you just look at those bottom seven and you see who has got buy-in from their players and you look at like what Eddie Howe's done at Newcastle it also helps that they've got the, the Saudi fund behind them yes they had a very good January didn't they yeah you can get a lot more buy-in from spending another 150 million quid on players but still you see he's got them sort of believing in what he's doing again now and, and hopefully we've got enough in the tank at Leeds to have the players buying into what, what Jesse Marsh is trying to do. And then, but then you look at the other ones and there's a there's sort of a, there's a discomfort at Watford, isn't there, between what Hodgson's doing and the players and the fans. It's not quite gelling there. And and this is why I brought up Lampard about, you know, how do you get pl- players to buy in when you're criticising them at this stage in the season? But it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. I mean, basically accusing the players of not having any bollocks, which, you know, <laughs> it's not like... It doesn't seem like, like the way to go. I think it, it's quite telling that Brentford, even though they seemed that they were on the slide massively, have managed to pick up two wins, which a little bit like Leeds, you know, have put them in such a, a strong position or much stronger position. And again, that probably feeds back to the fact that, you know, Frank has, has done good things there and made really they've made really, really good progress under him. And there probably is quite a, a strong core underlying belief in, in the system. I think that was why a lot of people were you know, a lot of people question the decision to get rid of Bielsa. It worked for so long that you did think to yourself that there is the potential for this to click again and there is the potential for him to get results because his football has got results in the past. And if he does, then perhaps he delivers exactly what needed to be delivered this season, which is another year in the Premier League. But ultimately, when a, when a board loses confidence, they lose confidence and, and that's what tends to happen. Do you expect us to stay up from here? Can I not answer that? Well, I, this is what I'm trying. I, I really want to expose you to the the <laughs> wrath of Twitter. Um, yeah, and people I, I, have. Well, Phil said we'd stay up. Yeah, no, I I feel like um, this is a massive brick wall 
that you're inviting me to, to run into. <laughs> I I know... But look at the veneer uh, on the bricks, Phil. I, I, are, we, are we more likely to stay up than we were to get in the playoffs in, this, uh, under Gary Monk? Oh, that, great question. This is, this, is, this is like when people say to me, out of 10, how likely are we to sign Rodrigo de Paul? As if, <laughs> as if there's any, any science in this. Uh, do you know, I'll go for six. Yeah. Um, I know what I think about this, but I'm not going to say. I hope, suspect, we should stay up. But then I do veer generally on the side of optimism. I mean, Michael, you privately think we've probably done enough, don't you? I mean, well, you, well, I say privately, you've said it on the podcast. I mean, in, in the th- I look at it in, in the way of we would need a spectacularly bad run, which I know we did have already this season, but there were difficult circumstances attached. There were a few games you kind of, you almost write off against, you know, against the likes of Liverpool where you look and you go, well, realistically, we're not going to get anything from this. So we could hit a really, really bang average bit of form now and be absolutely fine. It is within us to get a, a couple of a couple of wins. I do feel like that. And they I mean the, the bookies have us at about a 20% chance of going down. I think that's probably about fair. I, su- I suppose the other way to put this is, do you think Brentford are staying up? Um, well, I'll, I'll answer that by just saying, because I mentioned um, Project, you know, the 538.com, who tend to do statistical modelling around stuff and mm-hmm. famously yeah. predicted Hillary Clinton would beat Donald Trump in 2016. But we fell back on their statistical stuff a lot during the promotion run-in and they turned out to be right because we went up which is great but they've got Norwich at greater than 99% chance of going down Watford 83% chance of going down so that's two which I'm prepared to say (laughs) okay fine Uh, Burnley they've got at 51% and then Everton 32 Leeds 23 Brentford 7% and Newcastle 4 We see I was just going to say to you do you think Brentford are staying up? Well that's it I'll I'll answer it by saying more than likely even though they're only a point in front of us And Newcastle? It's funny isn't it because I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that those two clubs might get sucked back in a little bit, but I suspect the form of the bottom clubs might help everybody, really. I, th- I think if you look at the table and you think that Newcastle are staying up and Brentford are staying up, then Leeds right close behind them. It, it kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? It's going to depend to a large extent. I mean, that stat about Burnley, the 51% chance of um, of going down, is Quite fascinating given that they're on 21 points, four points adrift. They've only won three games all season. And yes, they do have games in hand, but they don't actually have any games in hand over Everton. I would have thought that they're in a bit more trouble than that. But the the, the best thing you can say about Leeds is they've, they've given themselves every chance now in a way that they just did not seem to have every chance after the Villa game. And they won't even give us a, a 1% chance of getting into the Champions League now on this uh, modelling <laughs> website. But um, just to quickly move the discussion on then before we close out the show, on to what do we need to do next? Let's assume we do stay up and go from that point. Because well, I was going to say beat Southampton. Well, the, alter- the well, the alternative doesn't bear thinking about. I was just thinking about because Phil, you've written about it this week. The squad rebuilding. What I thought was funny was um, not a single mention of a midfielder. <laughs> oh no, attack, attacking midfielder. Okay, I'll let yeah, you off there. Uh, Brendan Emerson. Okay. Yeah, no, that that has to be done. Yeah, no, I think I'm in that mentality now of if Phillips and Forshaw are staying, you have very good cover in that area of the midfield. Although I wouldn't object to more cover given what's gone on this season they've got to sign a centre forward I mean they have Bamford coming off at Wolves and Greenwood coming on Gilhart had a, a back injury obviously and I, I do think it's going to get you know, Gilhart doing that against Norwich it's becoming harder and harder to hold him back I mean he's just so prodigious and so talented that, that he, he is going to break through but you can't have a situation particularly with, with Bamford having struggled as much as he has this season that when he goes off you're turning to somebody who's barely played in, in the Premier League at all and is essentially an academy player that is, I think that's got to be done I look at the, the two sides of defence and 
it concerns me the way that Leeds are exposed there. And that I suppose that could be a tactical thing, but I think they're going to have to ask whether or not that's a personnel thing. Well, that's one well. of the interesting things about Marsh is the formations that he's opted for are slightly narrower than Bielsa. He likes players to play a little bit more tucked in, which can leave you vulnerable down the wings, as we saw against Villa. Yeah, l- less, so it, it feels to me like your fullbacks need to be good. Less so in the last two games, but I think if if four two 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 is going to persist, then that is then your fullbacks do have to be good, absolutely, and I think they they would need to be every bit as energetic as they were under Bielsa because they will have to get forward and get back and, and there will be massive defensive responsibility on them but these days fullbacks cannot just sit behind the halfway line they've they've got to they've got to push on this sort of more advanced midfield area um which could have been Conor Gallagher's domain this season Aronson you know they, they bid for in January I think Aronson fits the bill of the type of player they should be going for age and kind of within budget you would say realistically do you think we're shopping in the sort of 15 20 million bracket again there are maybe slightly higher. I'm guessing here, I have to say, but there are maybe slightly higher. But I don't see this summer being a massive push beyond, say, what they were spending on Rodrigo, um, for example. Do, do they need um, to just spend more wisely? Well, yes. I mean, that's to, a, that's, to, that is an accusation you can level to, at anybody who's buying players. To an extent, camp. I think wisely is probably the, the wrong word because it implies that they've just gone, right, sign this guy, that'll do. I mean, they do look into all these deals. But more of them, I think, need to click in, in a big way. I mean, we were talking before we came on air about the centre-backs. And I was saying that in Robin Koch, you've got a really talented guy who's been in the Germany squad, is younger than Llorente, and has just never been able to get a good run on the right side of the, the centre-back pair and not a really long extended run. You know, like 15, 20 games. And that's got to happen because I think I think there's a, a really, really quality player there waiting to come out of Premier League level. And on the left-hand side, you've got Cooper there, obviously, but um, you've got Stroik as well, who's not in good form at the moment. I think everybody can see that. But again, really, really talented player. That strikes me, centre-back, is, even though the defensive record has been so bad, I think they're covered there. I think provided they do the right things and they're sensible about who plays and everything else, I think the numbers and the bodies there are, are, are okay. But what needs to happen next, I think it's it's critical that they get the right players for whichever system Marsh decides to to fall on and I think he'll be a bit more flexible with his systems but for the style of play that he wants and, and for the plan that he has it's imperative that they, they do what has to be done in the transfer window I think the squad has to be bigger I do think it, I do think that's been one of the glaring lessons of, of this season Or um, is, is it that the core 18 has to just be better? Both I think it's both I think it has to be better but it has to be it has to be bigger as well and when we've spoken about this in the past and, and quite recently I, I've sort of said I, I don't think the approach this summer should be to hack players from the squad I don't think that's what's needed I think it's the addition of players that is needed I mean say for the example if we, if you say Luke Ayling if Leeds were to decide right we want to replace Ayling we want a different right back if you get rid of Ayling and you bring in another right back who either has fitness problems or struggles for form like for example Furpo has you're in exactly the same position. You know, you've got an area of the team that just isn't covered and isn't dealt with. And and that, I think, is what needs to happen now. You, you need a, a kind of clear idea in your head of if this position becomes vacant, who do we play there? And how do we fill it without it really being square pegs and round holes? Bielsa is brilliant at that for so much of his time at picking up injury crises and everything else and finding a way to to solve them. But it can catch up on you and it felt like it did catch up on Leeds this season the fact that they, they never had a settled team and in some areas of the team it was really difficult to compensate for players who were missing So what do you think then? Centre forward attacking midfielder 
I want us to buy five central midfielders. I never want to see what has happened this season. Buy five central midfielders, and then we never have to speak about central midfielders <laughs> ever again. By the time that they've all gone through, um, gone through to the, the end of their careers, podcast will have finished. Well, there'll be nothing to discuss. That's what we could do. We could do it the Warnock style, couldn't we? And put four central midfielders across <laughs> midfield just to be sure. Four absolutely one pace midfielders. That's what <laughs> this we is need what to you say. wanted. This is what you asked for, people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do you not feel that a, a lot of what needs to be done is quite obvious? I think kind so, yeah. Of, kind of staring, staring us in the face. I think the, the biggest question is, is do we have faith in them to deliver it? I think is the, probably the bigger question. And do, we, and do we have the money to do it? Yeah. We, and, I mean, and, I think everyone is expecting a sale, aren't they? Rafinha, yes, given, I, I given I the week's so. news, Rafinha seems the more likely who, now. Who it will be is slightly difficult to say. I mean, the, the Rafinha-Barcelona stuff bubbling is... is a little ominous, I would say. I mean, Deco, his agent, is massively connected at Barcelona. It was always likely that if he was going to a top European club, that they'd be they'd be very prominent on the list. I've seen all this stuff about release clauses. I've checked this so many times, and I don't think there is one in his current contract. There, there'll be a relegation clause, release clause, yeah. without a doubt. I mean, that goes without saying. And actually, I mean, that's kind of irrelevant in the sense that if Leeds were to go down... You're not keeping Rafinha anyway, are you? I mean, no. how on earth do you sell sell that to, <laughs> to him or, or to, to others in the squad as well? But this new contract that they have been talking about, there, there definitely would be a release clause in that. Nobody's really making much much secret of that. And then obviously you've got Phillips as well and and Millie. I mean, this like this conversation is just going to go on endlessly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that I think if you canvassed a lot of people, including us journalists, it it wouldn't be much of a surprise if somebody did go for big money in the summer and, and that was cash that was reinvested. Yeah, and then they maybe spread the risk over, let's say, three or four players rather Victor than... Victor Alter buys 30-18-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> at, at £1 million each. <laughs> I think this is probably going to be the acid test of his of his um, director of football sh- uh, ship this summer, Victor Alter. Who, if we do sell someone, who is it? And where does that money go? I think you're absolutely right. You fit upon probably what's at the root of this now. Well... The Marsh appointment obviously has to work. You know, that there is a lot hanging on that. And in order for it to work, you have to do the right things for him in the way that, you know, year after year, they seem to do the right things for, for Bielsa. There was not a lot of friction over recruitment or transfers with, with Bielsa. They tended to end up on the same page eventually. But yeah, given that we're out of the Bielsa era now and, and given that you can no longer fall back on that amazing trait Bielsa had of making... Wine out of water, if I can say that. I mean, not entirely water. You know, the the, the kind of grapes were there to, to work with. But like, um, <laughs> love this analogy. This is, this is shit analogy. <laughs> it's not end this before it, it it goes down a cul-de-sac. But there was always that thing with Bielsa of, in any circumstances, he could deliver something, even when you, you least expected it. This is a summer where he's no longer there, and you have to change the squad for a, a completely different head coach, and it is going to have to work. Well, let's not get complacent. We should caveat all this by saying let's stay up first. And yes. we'll preview Southampton next week and hopefully back on form. Three victories on the bounce would look very good at this time of the season. There's no getting away from that, is there really? Well, three victories on the bounce. And I think it would be very hard to make the argument that Leeds are going to finish bottom three. At the Phil Hay Show, if you want to say hi on Twitter, you can subscribe to The Athletic Pound a month for six months at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Back next week, we'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show.